Good evening. You're listening to the Year Now podcast. It's the 17th of May. And joining me this evening, I have Roman. Hello. And Mark. Hey. And Mark, your voice sounds back to normal. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot better. Uh, turns out that COVID for me was a full two-week experience, like taking oh, wow. a nice holiday abroad, but the opposite. I felt <laughs> really bad for four days and then just tired for the rest of the two weeks, but it's so nice to be out the other side of it. Still don't have my taste back, so uh, there is that. And no jokes about taste in clothes, thank you very much. I'm talking about, you know, my taste in my mouth. I can't taste a damn thing, really. Um, but apart from that, I'm I'm all better, which is really nice. Good to hear. Good to hear. I um, heard today that my mother has come down with COVID, so um, oh. I'm hoping that she's uh, going to be okay. She's uh, nearly 80, so uh, she's sort of in that uh, age group where it could potentially be quite serious, so um, I'm certainly hoping that uh, it all goes okay, but uh, she is otherwise healthy, so... Yeah, so, so she be isolating good. for a week. Has she got anybody to help her with that? Um, she's got some some neighbours who are who are pretty good. So um, hopefully she hasn't already infected them. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yes, it, hopefully it will all be good. So and I have managed to avoid it myself. So I'm uh, pleased about that. Uh, trying to avoid it as long as possible. So so far, but surely mentioning it just jinxes you. It's going to happen now, right? That's how the world works. Sure, if you're a believer in jinxes, and I don't think uh, you should be on this podcast if you are. <laughs> All right, see you later, guys. It's been good. Bye. <laughs> uh, anyway, so let's get on with some topics. So uh, I wrote the newsletter um, this week with uh, Bromman Telp, and one of the topics that I covered was a supposed breakthrough in um, – a discovery around sudden infant death syndrome. Now, I have to preface all this with saying that uh, I'm an IT person, and so I don't know very much about health. But Bronwyn, you're a uh, a midwife, and so I, this is sort of right up your alley. I would have thought. Yeah, it's a big part of our education. Um, particularly, you know, we're still very much promoting safe sleep. So that's baby slide on a back. No extra pillows or toys in the cot, making sure that mattress is flat and nice and firm. But it's also uh, it's also talking about keeping baby appropriately dressed so they're not too warm, not too cold. Um, and also those sort of um, modifiable lifestyle factors. So talking to parents about smoking and drinking and having making sure baby has a safe sleep space if they are going to smoke and drink. Because if you are smoking and drinking, you, your senses or your arousal system can be a little bit dulled. So you don't quite know, particularly if you're in a bed sharing situation, where baby is in the same sense as you would be if you were sober. Okay, so a fair bit of it then is, I guess, trying to avoid suffocation as a possible cause, things like toys and blankets and things like that. Yes. I mean, back in the 80s, New Zealand had one of the highest rates in the world for SUDI and SIDS. Um, now that rate... So SUDI is what's called a sudden unexpected death in infancy. So these are infants up to the age of one year who have died, of, of, whether it's been explained or unexplained initially. Right. Um, then that can change into SIDS if there's still an unexplained cause. Okay, so SIDS is just a, it's a catch-all for yeah. it's sudden stuff that's not really known about? Yeah. Yeah, um, it's pretty much after they've sort of been able to officially rule out safe, um, unsafe sleep or 
an actual, you know, um, a metabolic or genetic cause or anything like that. Mm. Um, determination of that does require, you know, both a, um, an assessment of, you know, what babies, lifestyle, family factors, environmental factors, and as well as a gold standard thorough autopsy. Um, and so far in one of the more recent studies I've seen um, of sudden infant death, only one family declined the autopsy. So what we're getting in New Zealand is pretty good data. And we and the the incidence at the moment is some, as I understand, is somewhere between forty and sixty cases per year in New Zealand. Yes, I'm looking at the 2018 stats. Um, about 38 sudden unexpected deaths in infancy, and that included about 24 infant deaths, which about 20 were male, and of the SUDI deaths, 20 were male and 18 were female. Um, right. But they were also waiting for about 14 um, infant deaths that were awaiting coroner's findings. Um, so that could potentially bump up the number to 52 hmm. for 2008. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's obviously a pretty rare occurrence considering how many babies are born each year, but mm -hmm. uh, obviously pretty distressing or extremely distressing for the parents uh, to of have course. that sort of Which that, is, uh, which is how many babies? Can we, can we do some quick math? So if there are 5 million people in this country and they live to an average age, let's say, of 75, <laughs> can we figure out how many people are born a year in New Zealand? Um, so well, I think, we I think they sort of do it as a SUDI rate. So for every 1,000 births um, in 2018, SUDI was about 0 0.6. Okay. And for 2014 to 2018, the SUDI rate was 0 0.6 um, to 0 0.8 per 1,000 births. But if we if, so, if my if my if math you, works out, so five about, million is that a hundred thousand divided by ten would be five hundred thousand, and then divide by seven and a half, so it'd be about sixty thousand born a year. How does that sound? Sounds about <laughs> sounds okay. Well, as I was doing it in my head, I was wondering, am I off by a factor of ten? <laughs> so when I said a hundred thousand. Presumably, you're not delivering that many of them, uh, Bronwyn. No, no, but some DHBs can do about a couple of thousand a year or more. Okay, so that 40 out of 60,000 would come out about 0.6 per thousand. So, so I mean, in New, in, in New Zealand in 2019, 59,818 women gave birth to 60,167 babies. So that's no, including, you know, that's twice your, in a year. No, that's your twins. Oh, twins. Of your twins. <laughs> but, but well, yes, they did it twice in quick succession. <laughs> you have your twins, your triplets, but at the same time, um, you know, you do have your, and these are all live born babies. These, this is not including stillbirth stats. Um, but um, again, we do have the, uh, the incidence of um, close birth. So, you know, babies that are born maybe 10, 11 months apart. So anyway, all of this is background. What's the actual news? Yeah, so um, there was a study that was done uh, at a <laughs> hospital in Sydney in Australia, and they have identified something in the blood that correlates fairly well, as I understand, with um, SIDS deaths. So they they when they this was looking at the study of blood that had been taken. Um, sort of two or three days after the birth of a child. Um, so they'd take a, um, a sample of their blood and then they, the study actually took a sample of that and looked for this particular compound called butylcholinesterase. Yes? That sounds like a good pronunciation. Um, it's interesting. Um, 
what the test that they actually took the blood samples from is the newborn metabolic screening test. That's a test that's offered to all parents in New Zealand when their baby is 48 hours of age. And what it's meant to do is identify inborn errors of metabolism. And the reason why we do it at 48 hours of age is that whether babies are breastfed or formula fed, we have an idea as to whether the body is able to process all the essential nutrients and build amino acids and their bodies are working properly when it comes to processing food. So in the event that we get something like, um, you know, a condition where they can't protest, process um, glucose or lactose, then we can actually initiate immediate treatment right away. Um, however, the newborn metabolic screening test is sort of, it's a screening test, not a diagnostic test. So you can screen positively through this metabolic screening test, but then you still have to proceed with further diagnostic testing to confirm. So there is an event, there is possible to get false positives when it comes to this metabolic screening test. It so doesn't often what, happen. Oh, were were they using the results from the test or were they just using the blood sample again? They, well, they were using, they were using that sample. Well, the thing is when you look at the metabolic screening test, it's a little card that has four circles in it. And we feel we have to make sure that we get enough blood from baby's heel to fill in those, all those circles. And so they do one, they would use one square, one circle for the first test. And then they actually keep those files or little cards on record. And, you know, they come, they sometimes go back to those cards for um, quality control purposes. Okay. So, yeah, so the they heel were... prick test, I think it's called. Yeah, it's a, we call it the Guthrie test, the heel prick test. Um, I think in America, they may call it the heel spot test. So it has a lot of different names. But in New Zealand, the official name is the newborn metabolic screening test. Yeah. And so the study, they use those samples. Mm -hmm. um, so very early. Record. Yeah. So very early. So these are babies that are two days old, at least. Mm. But when they, but they're looking at, you know, those babies sometimes die between was it three to four weeks? Three weeks and, and to 104 two years, weeks. I think. So it's yeah. quite a big range. So the particular yeah. enzyme that they're looking at, there's a lot of things that can actually affect it, particularly once you're looking past that newborn stage. Um, I think animal studies, there's some animal studies that would say that uh, secondhand smoke can actually impact those levels. Right. So what you're saying is that it's not necessarily valid to take that measurement of the the compound in the blood at birth and then extrapolate out to be that being what that measurement would be throughout the that whole two years of uh, the period where the SIDS could occur. Hmm. I mean, it's an interesting correlation. And I think if we can actually, if they can actually pr prove that there's a significant consistency within that result over a period of time, that would be amazing. And that could actually let us... Um, how can I say, sort of fine tune and give directed advice and support to those families who have those higher risk factors. Mm. And so um, what they were saying, what they were saying in the paper too, was that that particular enzyme was implicated in the autonomic nervous system. So presumably if you were low in that enzyme, then perhaps that could cause the baby to stop breathing, which might then cause and cause the, the event. Or potentially to make them more vulnerable to, unsafe sleeping practices. If you're sleeping a baby on the tummy, they're sort of already in a low oxygen environment. Um, a mm. baby that's sort of, you know, a healthy baby who's sort of sleeping on their back, if they are in a low oxygen, high carbon environment, they can do things to help them breathe again. They wake up, they turn their head, maybe they move around a little bit. Um, mm. If you already sort of have that reduced arousal, which can be, you know, sometimes due to prematurity, being small for gestational age, being a, already in a smoking and a smoke filled environment, or again, again, being on that tummy, you don't quite have those same reflexes available to you. 
Mm. So if you already, if you also have this additional, um, what is it, reduced level of enzyme, then potentially that's an increased risk factor. And that would be a really good opportunity to increase that education. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you wrote, when you published the article, um, I was looking at how popular media was presenting this. And mm. I came across um, CNN, which actually had a really nice balanced article about it, talking about, you know, here are some of the research issues that other people are finding, um, but also paying respect to the main researcher who lost her own child to SIDS about 30 years ago. But, oh, let me see if I can find it. But there was an article from Yahoo, which I thought was a little bit OTT. And they yeah, were saying... I, I imagine that there are a lot of articles that are sort of saying, well, we found that this is the cure or this is the cause yeah. or whatever. Well, this is what so, it's more so. was that well, I saw a couple of articles where there was just a proclamation that the solution to SIDS has been found. And yeah. as we know, as skeptics from pretty much any scientific pronouncement where it's an absolute, nothing is ever that simple. It tends to be a mixture of the scientists themselves, sometimes journalists and others in that chain transmitting this to the public that somewhere along the line, these things get overly simplified and made into an amazing new discovery. Um, and yeah, as soon as I read the headline, it's like, I bet that's not what's going on. Well, well here's what this Yahoo News article, which I've just found, um, said, you know, general, cons- according to Mayo Clinic, the consensus among medical professionals is that if a child stops breathing during sleep, this defect will prevent the infant from startling or waking up, you know, and sort of also goes on and makes a little poke at, you know, researchers have been um, telling us for years to sleep baby on their back and don't cover their face. But yeah, baby still died, which is a little bit you know, <laughs> right. Yes, they wanna, they're wanting to say that this is now the cause. It's not to do with anything else. Okay, yeah, so here's right. here's one that I read from Global News. Researchers say they found the reason why infants die from SIDS, which <laughs> just no, <laughs> this is yeah. not how you report this. So one of the one of the things that this reminded me of was that there was a researcher in New Zealand uh, some 20, 30 years ago who did proclaim to have the cause of uh, all sudden infant deaths, and that was um, uh, gaseous emissions from PVC mattresses. So what do you think about that theory, Bronwyn? Funny, had you actually heard of it? Yes, but at the same time, having a clean mattress that isn't full of mold is is very, very good. But no, mm-hmm. we're not taught about, taught about gaseous emissions in midwifery school. I will tell you that much right now. <laughs> yeah, so there was a, um, a guy, Dr. Jim Sprott, um, who was fairly prominent uh, last century. Uh, he was a he was a chemist, um, and he had a, a company that he ran that did analytical chemistry. Uh, he came to prominence when he investigated the uh, shell casings uh, from the bullets in the crew murders uh, in the Arthur Allen Thomas um, case. Uh, so Arthur Allen Thomas was uh, uh, convicted of murder, um, and it turns out that the casings for the bullets were planted by police in order to obtain the conviction of Arthur Allen Thomas. So uh, that was a particularly um, particularly dark patch in the New Zealand police history. But then he went on to sort of uh, champion lots of other causes, uh, such as uh, being against the New Zealand anti-nuclear stance. So he wanted to have um, US uh, nuclear-powered warships coming into our ports. Um, he was... Uh, 
uh, against the idea that um, alcohol big, played a big part in the road toll. And uh, and then he went on to uh, invent this idea of uh, toxic gases emanating from PVC mattresses uh, being the sole cause of SIDS. And he then went on to have a company that would sell you the mattress cover, which would protect your baby from this. Wow. So that sounds like kind of yeah. quite a, a wide range of expert opinions this doctor thought that he was uh, able to have. Uh, yes. Nuclear stance, mattresses and SIDS, shell casings <laughs> in forensic cases. That Yeah, that's quite surprisingly wide. But actually, New Zealand is also the home of another internationally renowned um, um, SIDS expert, which was um, the late Shirley Tonkin. Um, she she had a lot more prominence um, and did a lot more good when it came to um, increasing and improving um, our outcomes for sudden infant death in New Zealand and worldwide. Mm. Okay. But okay, so interesting with this Dr. Sprott. So he basically announced that he'd found the uh, the cause, and then he started selling a solution. Yes, and and it. and also basically decrying uh, anybody who didn't believe his theory. So the um, the the red nose day appeal, um, Plunkett. Uh, they said, well, actually, your evidence doesn't really stack up. And so he then went and into his combative mode and took out uh, large newspaper ads <laughs> against them. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, the newspaper ads worked for him when he tried to get all those uh, gun casings, didn't he? <laughs> you know, he got uh, about 26,000 yeah. cartridge casings when he put out those um, newspaper and uh, television ads. Yeah, that was back in the 70s, I think. And there was, uh, yeah, there was a... Uh, a a guy, I think it was a gun shop owner from Dandyburg. I'm not sure whether it was a gun shop, but uh, yeah, he was sort of implicated in that. From what I, the research I did, those um, mattress covers were still being sold in New Zealand up until last year, um, but the website seems to have gone away now, although I did find a an Australian health uh, influencer who was advocating uh, for them as the cure for SIDS. So what can you expect from a health influencer? Not much, sadly. And it's interesting that Sprott um, was making trying to make a profit, whereas Dr. Tonkin actually gifted bassinets to Northland communities in the 90s. Yeah, my feeling is that he was uh, a businessman at heart and uh, was uh, sort of keen on uh, being able to make money out of any of his discoveries. But yes, so uh, he he uh, died in 2014. So um, yeah. I think his uh, his family have carried on the business. But uh, who knows? Well, they're fighting they're, they're fighting over the property in Rimuera is what they're doing. Oh, but yes, I did read about that. <laughs> at least we can uh, we can talk about him however we like, and we're not going to be sued for defamation, which is lovely. <laughs> yeah, well, we might want to be careful. <laughs> Perhaps his, uh, his family might take offence. Oh yeah, can can you sue um, for defamation under somebody's estate? I guess maybe if his if his name's being used for an ongoing business, maybe that's grounds for suing for defamation. Probably best to just not speak ill of the dead, but uh, as a general policy, <laughs> I'm just going to say I'm I'm more than comfortable speaking ill of Sylvia Brown, for example. <laughs> um, I was about to say, there's nothing that we've said here that wasn't in the New Zealand Herald, so... No, and that that's the, the best defence that we try to use at the Skeptics as much as we can against defamation is telling the truth, right? 
Don't mm. say it if it's not true and you can't be done for defamation. If you can prove what you're saying to a, a decent level of confidence, then you should be fine. So as long as we keep doing that, I think we'll be all right. You could still have a court case, though, which could still be very expensive. Yes, it, definitely. Even without merit, I think a uh, a case designed to annoy people is still going to be pretty. Yeah, you know, we we don't kind of we don't have. We yeah, we don't have any sort of anti-slap uh, legislation in New Zealand, do we? Which is the uh, the slap of being the strategic lawsuit against um, something participation. Uh, I'm yeah, look I can't remember. Uh, but yes, it's it's people using lawsuits to shut people up, frivolous lawsuits, and having enough money that they can bury somebody in legal fees, etc. Which happens a lot in the US, from what I understand. Even though our defamation laws are fairly broad over here, um, my understanding is that they're not used that often, and that thankfully people aren't so happy over here as far as defamation is concerned. Yes, let's hope that uh, that doesn't change. Uh, so, Mark, you were going to tell us about uh, the Rife, remote Rife therapy. Yeah, so this was an interesting email I received a couple of weeks ago, um, just when I had COVID. So, you know, this was really good timing. But um, a woman called Joanne O'Brien, I'm on her newsletter. I have no idea why, but... The amount of nonsense I get in my mailbox, I totally accept that it's my fault that I get like health-related spam. Uh, I can't blame anybody else. I don't think anybody is nefariously signing me up for this. It's all my own damn fault. Um, but for whatever reason, I received this email from her and she was offering this treatment of Rife therapy. And I'm sure you guys know about um, Rife and his idea. It's a, it's a variation of um, the bioresonance theory. It, I'm not sure whether he's the originator of it or whether he just kind of jumped on the bandwagon. But the, the basic idea of bioresonance is that we have frequencies in the body and the body can have its own healthy frequency but also diseases can have frequencies and so some bioresonance machines will try and fix your frequency and get it back to where it should be some will play an antiphase of the frequency of the disease you have in order to kill that disease and it's all a bunch of nonsense it's all variations on this idea of frequencies and electricity and and all this stuff that, you know, it was new science a hundred years ago, and I guess it must have mm. dazzled people to hear these funky words. Um, and so Rife basically did some research and came out with some ideas, and he had his generators that he made, these machines that you could heal people with. And it seems like from what I can tell, it had a resurgence maybe starting in the 80s or 90s, where I think maybe it became a lot cheaper to make these machines. And the machines from what I've read of teardowns, have hardly anything in them. It's basically a battery and a few components that give you a mild electric shock, enough that you can feel that something's happening, which probably, you know, helps people to figure that they're getting their money's worth. Um, mm. But it's not doing anything useful to you, obviously. It's just pumping some electricity into you. Uh, and they have dials and knobs and stuff. I've seen devices at these kind of wellness conferences and, uh, they just, yeah, I guess they look the part, but you know, 
they're not going to do anything useful. Um, but this woman, Joanne, I think she's been offering rife for a while, but obviously with COVID, etc., it's harder to offer these things in person. So she's now offering through this email she sent me a new service, which is remote rife, which fascinated me. So she's basically outrifed rife. She's decided that she's figured something out that rife hasn't done, which is that you can do this using a DNA sample. And she suggests sending a fingernail, but and I don't know what the legality is of this, you know, sending biological samples through the mail. Presumably there are restrictions on what you can mail to other people. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Bronwyn, do you know the law on this? Mailing samples around? Well, actually, well, you think about 23andMe, um, you could send a DNA sample um, as saliva, and I was able to send that over to the U.S., Mm. Are there labels on it saying it's biological material, though? God, I don't remember. It just it just sort of went into a nice little vial, into a box, and into a courier packet. Well, I, I guess yeah, anything yeah. if you Google. I, I, I do know that um, if, if you – I mean, I've, I've uh, done bowel cancer samples um, every couple of years, and I do know that you have a special packet for that, but you can tr transmit that through the mail, but it does have a – a uh, nasty label on the outside saying you, you don't want to go uh, fishing inside this package because it contains uh, my, uh, some sort of <laughs> biological sample. So, And I mean, having had an experience working in laboratories, I mean, if you're going to send something like such as blood, um, it does need to go into a certain sort of courier bag and, and itself needs to be in a certain sort of vial or it needs to be what we call aliquoted in which the um, plasma or the serum has been taken off for testing. Part of me wants part of me wants to organise a skeptics campaign to uh, uh, take fingernail clippings and mail them to this woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I imagine fingernail clippings are very much at the you know the innocent end of the biological material in the mail scale, and I I think quite possibly it's okay. But I'm betting she hasn't checked whether it is okay or not. But the the claim that she makes then is that you can basically send her a, a fingernail sample, and with quantum entanglement, she <laughs> will then be able to treat you with right therapy remotely. And it's like, why, why is your fingernail quantum entangled with your body? What the hell is going on here? I, it's your I DNA. Figure it it's out. your DNA. Carrington, uh, yeah. how yeah. does it work? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's like, like frequency is not enough of a buzzword to be using. She threw quantum entanglement in, which is it's such a Deepak Chopra piece of nonsense. Mm. Um but yeah, presumably she'll she'll have willing customers who love everything she does and be willing to spend a hundred dollars or or such for this. Uh, there's always a sucker, right, that's willing mm. to pay for this nonsense. So there's there is a an interesting piece of skeptical history around rife machines from back in the nineties. Um, so there was a case of a young boy who had a really nasty um, cancer that was growing on his chin, and the parents wanted to treat him with a rife, with rife therapy, and they were convinced that this was going to cure him. And so they basically, I think, I'm not sure whether it was both parents, but at least one of the parents kidnapped the child, took him away um, to be treated with this rife therapy uh, instead of actually being treated with the appropriate chemotherapy or radiotherapy or whatever. And, and it was featured fairly prominently, I think, on the Holmes program 
um, back in the 90s, and uh, the the kid ended up dying um, of the cancer, which is which is pretty sad. When it's those easily treatable cancers, especially, it's really disappointing mm. to read those cases where you know, someone could have a very good survival chance, and it's yeah. taken away from them by parents often. Yeah, Ron, are you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to ask. I mean, in terms of the electromagnetic um, frequencies given off by the Rife machine, how different different is that from like computers or microwaves or any other usual electronics that someone would have in their home? Well, usually you you hold a paddle for these kinds of things, so you are actually pumping it into you. Um, hmm. So it's 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 a little bit different to that. I mean, it's you know it's electrocuting you, but yeah, as as somebody mentioned the other day, it, it's not probably that different to the uh, e meter from Scientology. It's the same kind of thing. It's just pumping a little bit of electricity into you, and yeah, people yeah, think that it's, it it's. I I think the intention was that it's a, it's a pure sine wave of a particular frequency and that you could that one of your knobs on this right machine can adjust the frequency to a particular to target i mean it, it's based upon the idea of resonance so there's that old idea that a an opera singer if they sing at a particular frequency can break a, a glass and so i think in people's minds they think of um, things like viruses and bacteria inside your body that are causing you to be unhealthy would have a particular resonant frequency that if you um, pumped the right frequency into your body is going to make those resonate and and kill themselves and yeah and basically wow. it's uh, it obviously doesn't work that way well i will let you know looking at the apple store or at least on the apple apps um app there are apps <laughs> or rife oh, oh right Jeez. So hang on, they allow that, and yet pornography, which is a real thing, they don't allow. I mean, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> Although they have ghost hunting apps on the uh, on the app store as well. I mean, it's full of, I guess, the kind of nonsense that uh, Apple considers is not dangerous, even though it probably is. Yeah, what are we going to do with people? <laughs> Educate them, I think. More education. <laughs> I guess this this sort of remote rife thing has parallels to that Healy device that uh, our friend Jeanette Wilson was um, pushing a year or two ago that supposedly generated frequencies that could you could pump through your body and uh, cured you of all the things that are wrong with you. And then she was trying to promote the idea of doing it remotely as well. Um, so you could basically have a remote session over the internet with somebody and use the device that she had in her hand to to diagnose and cure uh, the person through an app uh, at the other end. Almost feels like it's inevitable that these things go that way because there's no evidence for it working proximally. So what's the problem with doing it over the phone? I mean, if you haven't had to give evidence so far, Reiki's another one that I've seen where, mm. you know, there are Reiki practitioners that are offering it over the phone these days. and uh, Works just as well. Prayer. Yeah, and it exactly works just as well, not at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, but yeah, so, you know, if, if you've already let down your guard and you're not asking for evidence, then uh, I guess you're ripe for the picking by, by that point. Roman, what were you going to talk about? Well, I guess I can just uh, talk a little bit about what I wrote with the in the most recent um, newsletter. Um, just a little bit more skeptical history. Decided to take a bit of a break from the uh, MLM scene for a little bit. And yeah, talk about how um, a couple of mediums and Petoni got hampered. 
<laughs> during a seance. It was a really cool story to come across. Um, again, just like with the Zinga Lee story, and in fact happened within the same uh, couple of weeks, this arrest of Priscilla and James Hackett from Zinga Lee. Just looking at, you know, who got arrested for fortune telling in New Zealand. So it seems that there's a bit of a sting. Both In both cases, a plainclothes policeman showed up and uh, was able to arrest them. But the story... Um, how it built up over several seances being held in the Wellington region. And this one guy, Frederick Vaughn, just not buying anything that James Hackett was selling. Um, and just seeing a little bit about where these events sort of held, were held in Wellington. Um, you know, so you had the Psychical Research Society, which was very much about trying to find, su find supportive scientific evidence towards um, psychic events and, you know, the spirit world. They met at Balance Hall, which I found out was um, a Manor Street, and it used to be the location of the uh, Trades Council, which I think is now um, somewhere else in the city. So we kind of got a date of about May 2nd and May 3rd for the first event. Um, Frederick Vaughn didn't buy it, so I uh, kind of started to uh, build a bit of a sting, it sounds like. Uh, he got the medium to come to his house on Lloyd Street um, a couple of times. Yeah, still wasn't quite sure. Gradually was sort of convinced in the moment, he thought it was all very like, yeah, I see these spirits. I see these floating lights. But in the cold light of day, he didn't believe it. So on May 16th, another seance was held in Petoni at a Mr. Whitford's office. Now, Whitford is a very well, is a, well, historically in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was very well known as a pretty much a um, prodigy in law. And as well, um, had, was a bit of a figure in Wellington and New Zealand politics. So I think it was in his office, they had the seance. Where James Hackett sort of fell down is that he kept on doing the same show over and over again. The <laughs> same spirits came out. Um, the same questions were asked in a sense. What Frederick Vaughn did was try to give, you know, trap James. So when James was doing his light show with this ball of oil that Muslim had been dipped in and had been warmed up to start lighting up because the heat of phosphorus that this Muslim was dipped in can actually cause a bit of a glowing, glowing appearance. So he's on a stick and he starts waving the stick around and Vaughn sort of tries to say, oh, I want to speak to the spirit. When this little ball of Muslim came around to him, Vaughn grabbed it, had the lights turn on. The medium was exposed. But so they got arrested by this plainclothes policeman. They go to court. And while the evidence, you know, when you hear the stories, it's pretty clear that, you know, this is a scam. I don't know why, but I guess sort of the feeling at the time is that, you know, a lot there's members on the jury who were sympathetic and thought that Hackett, who was somehow relatively famous or relatively well known, I should say, both in Australia and in New Zealand for his mediumship skills, a lot of sympathy and belief in his skills. So he um, was kind of a hung jury and the court wasn't motivated to pursue it further. And he got and he got off scot-free. But in the aftermath, you don't hear about James or Priscilla further. I don't know if they changed their names or what have you, but I think I, I was able to trace the records. Um, Priscilla got married, but James disappears off the map. He doesn't really exist in New Zealand birth or death records before the event or after the event. And Frederick Vaughn, I was able to find his grave, which is down in Karori. But in the process of this, trying to figure out, you know, the comings and goings and the life and death and the birth certificates and death certificates and where people were located, I had to use Ancestry.com and Family Search. Now, anytime you use these websites, you need to be very mindful of, are there Mormons involved? <laughs> <laughs> Undoubtedly, there will be. 
So well, Ancestry.com was started by Mormons. I think they might have sold it since. No, it was started, at least one of the people who started it, because the company goes back. Ancestry.com goes back to about the 80s. Um, and at least one of the members was not in the LDS church. Then it was bought in the 90s by a couple of graduates from Brigham Young University, which is pretty much a feeder school for, you know, feeder school for uh, the Mormon church. And now it's been bought by a private equity firm. However, right. FamilySearch.com is very much an LDS-owned operation. So while LDS never owned Ancestry.com, very much LDS influence. And of course, you're looking at that very deep interest that they have in genealogy and genetics, all for the purpose of uh, post-mortem baptisms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that whole idea of being able to save the entire world by baptizing people after they've died, mm. it's just so weird. But they're, they're very committed to it. I've got a Samoan friend who used to get paid of a weekend to go to his local um, Mormon church and basically be full immersion baptized in the name of dead people. And they just, him and a few <laughs> friends would go round in circles each time they were assigned a different dead person's name and they'd get baptized again and another five bucks. Uh, and it was a little bit of a money earner for him as a kid. It just, it's so weird. <laughs> but one thing I really want to figure out is why very basic New Zealand public records, such as electoral polls, birth and death certificates, or historical ones anyways, are so well available under a paywall that they're not publicly available to New Zealand public. I was able to access these for free because I went to my public library. That's not something that's accessible to a lot of people in particularly rural New Zealand. You can't access your public library to get Ancestry.com. So did you, did, so you're actually going to a library and viewing the physical records? Um, no, I'm just to view the digital records for free. Oh, I see. So I could go to my local library here in Auckland and see the same records. Yeah, but you actually have to physically go there. You can't just access your library website and log in and access the, digi the same digital archive. You actually have hmm. to physically go to the library. It's so I wonder if that's just a technology thing, though. Yeah, they'll, they'll want to make money, so they'll want to restrict basically, you know, their license conditions, who can use it and how often it's used. And presumably libraries would be able to open up for remote use for an extra fee, I'd imagine. But as I said, it's New Zealand, it's New Zealand records. So why is it being held by an American company behind a paywall? Right. Yeah. I'm certain, I'm certain they, there's a reason they can justify it, but how do they get a hold of those records? Well, presumably they're free as well. I mean, presumably somebody over here did the work of getting the records, digitizing them mm -hmm. and putting them on Ancestry.com and, and therefore they're able to charge for it because they've put that work in to do that. But I guess if you did the same, if you went and got the records yourself from the local councils, you could likely do that for free. Mm. As I understand it, though, you can actually look up births, deaths and marriages online, but you're restricted to it's, it's how recent... How recent you can see? Yeah, I don't think they want people looking up people who've recently um, sort of been married or or born or or died, basically for sort of privacy reasons, I suppose. Nope, that's absolutely true. But everything's behind sort of, again, it's behind a payroll wall, or you're having to log in, so you're giving your data to the Mormon Church. Hmm. So right. back to the. Uh Back to the seance, what really disappoints me here is when I read these stories of the tricks they use in seances or used 130 years ago, 
and how often people were able to expose them and find out things like the fake hand and the fake foot where you could then put your knee under a table, lock it into place and move the table around so it's floating. All these tricks that we knew about the gauze for ectoplasm and all that kind of stuff. We've known about it for hundred over 100 years and yet seances still happen and in the states this seems to be something that's still popular people turning the lights off and saying this is the only way the ghosts come out and trust us in this and this is real um it, it's just still happening it's ridiculous and it's permissible like i mean again both in the zinga lee case and i think in a couple other fortune telling case outside of this one the courts and the jury vote you know there's the, you know they basically say we we're not going to prosecute we're not going to do this again and you can go free and scam someone else that's a good point because it's such obvious fraud by now right we know it's fraud we know it doesn't happen but i guess because it's spiritual and kind of feels connected to religion in a way often laws are just a little bit scared to go near that but i guess looking at the records because again we don't see zinga lee show back up in wellington at least in the papers past records that we have we don't hear any fur- anything further about James Hackett. Maybe they were burned. It's in New Zealand papers that you're a scammer, but yeah, if it doesn't maybe reach back to Australia, like the James Hackett case did. Changed. Oh. Maybe, I mean, because, you know, we managed to embarrass Sue Nicholson uh, a while ago, but it didn't seem to damage her reputation that much that she said some really dumb things and got in trouble with the media or in the media. <laughs> um, she just carried on going. People still pay her $200 an hour for a Skype call. Whereas with James Hackett, because he because he was, you know, had such support in Australia from the spiritualist community, you know, his case became a little bit interesting, became a, you know, a good two or three columns in the broadsheets in, you know, Melbourne and Sydney newspapers. So he did get burned. Yes, the population was a lot smaller back then as well. Your notoriety would uh, be much more notable in the smaller population. A part of me wants to um, propose that we have um, some sort of uh, phosphorus and Muslim um, cloth burning ceremony at the upcoming uh, New Zealand Skeptics Conference this year. Well, I think we'd better get a proper chemist because, I mean, as with all things regarding uh, 18th century or 19th century chemistry, safety standards are not quite the same. And I understand that phosphorus <laughs> and water can be a little bit reactive. Uh, yes. I don't know necessarily what, what you know, rubbing phosphorus in my hands or into some Muslim, um, if that would cause cancer. <laughs> Sorry, Craig. I think Brom Broman's got a very fair point there, but I think she totally missed the plug. Do you want yeah. to uh, do you want to carry on with that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was trying to segue into the discussion of the upcoming New Zealand Skeptics Conference that uh, hopefully will be held in Wellington this year. Hopefully, if we can find anybody mad enough to uh, put some time into it. Mad. Okay. Um... Committed enough, uh, generous enough, kind enough. I hear that many hands make light work. We, w- we would specifically like someone who has really good event coordination skills and can just do a lot of phone calls for a bunch of people who don't like to be on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. So um, we already have several people in Wellington, and I think you volunteered as well, Craig, remotely to mm-hmm. help sure. us out with organizing this year's conference. But that um, that I am. As you say, many hands and all that. So if anybody else would like to be involved and if you're involved, you get to make the decision. So what's the entertainment? What's the food? Who are our speakers going to be? It is really nice to be able to kind of mold 
a skeptics conference at least in part based on your interests and what you think the audience would be interested in it's it's always good when we have new people with fresh ideas helping to organize a conference and just coming out with some really interesting and weird ideas for speakers so if anybody wants to help um email us at where do they email us at conference at skeptics.nz i'm guessing sure that'll get to us that should do the job um and we would love to hear from you i think what we'll probably end up doing is organizing an initial meeting in person in wellington we'll put it on meetup.com on the wellington skeptics in the pub group we'll meet up one evening have a general chat make sure we're uh, we're all good and uh, and then we'll start looking for speakers and a venue and all that kind of stuff just quick because we're just talking about skeptics in the pub just a quick uh, plug for membership corner this Friday, 6 p.m. at the Lobby Lounge, Intercontinental Hotel. It's our bi-weekly Wellington Skeptics in the Pub. Come meet some cool people, have some pretty decent food, and join us for drinks. Um, then next week, we have on Thursday at the Fork and Brewer at also 6 o'clock is the um, activism night, or science-based activism. And then on Friday at 6 p.m. online, it will be skeptics in cyberspace again. So just keep an eye out on the uh, skeptics Facebook page and we'll have the links for that for both events then. Awesome. Sorry. Right. So back to you, Craig, you were talking about Ken. I remember a couple of weeks ago reading uh, a post that Ken Ring had written and uh, it looked pretty weird. He it looks like he's fallen further and further down the rabbit hole and he covered a broad range of topics. Yeah. Shall I just fire off a few of the ideas sure. that he put out there? All right. So I made this nice little list, which I put in the newsletter a couple of weeks ago. So he said that the Bible is missing a hundred books that have been taken out for some kind of shadowy, nefarious reasons. Uh, I guess knowledge that the church doesn't want you to know about. Uh, apparently there are lost lands, not just of Atlantis, but Lemuria and Rama as well. Um, that there are 18-foot-tall people that used to roam the world, and this is seen in Egyptian hieroglyphics. They might have been aliens. He's not sure on this point. Uh, and there are underground labyrinths, both in the Arctic and Antarctic. Now, this might be where the aliens used to live, but also these days, rich people are using it to imprison child slaves. Um, so this is going on to the QAnon, pedophilia, Clinton's, Pizzagate nonsense. Um, Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landings. Uh, it's a little bit passe by now, that one. Michelle Obama used to be a man. I hate that one. That one's been around for a few years, and it's just so, so horrible. Mm. Um, and there are buildings on the moon, Mars, and Uranus. And this one I thought was interesting. From what I could tell, someone was getting images available online of the planets, kind of nice close-up images, and then running it through some kind of filtering software that would then turn it into rectangle shapes. And I think probably what they're doing is something to do with the compression of the image, because when you compress images, they tends to compress in squares and rectangles. And I think the image processing that he was using was just enhancing the compression artifacts. And then he was pointing that and saying, look, this is canals and this is buildings along the sides of canals. And it hmm. it's all just nonsense. But Ken Ring seems to have fallen for it. And then on top of all Well, he, he, may, he may have actually just been zooming into individual pixels, which by definition <laughs> are square. 
if if it was that bad, that's even more of a rookie mistake. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, then he had some New Zealand ones, and the New Zealand ones, there's always a risk here, and Ken goes into this of it becoming racist. Um, and sure enough, so he started off by saying that the New Zealand election was rigged by the voting machine companies. Uh, he then went on to say that the government is deliberately bankrupting New Zealand so that China can buy it. And he finished off with the racist one. Egyptians used to live here thousands of years ago, which he's not the first person I've heard this one from. But it's that whole thing of trying to undermine the idea that Maori were here first by saying, no, they weren't here first, that Celtic giants or Egyptians or somebody else here was before them. And it's just, it's mm. always horrible to hear because there's no evidence for it. No. The, that's interesting that he's talking about voting machines because from my recollection of the last election and all the elections I participated in, you have a sheet of paper that you have to go and write on. Uh, yeah, there's no machine involved like there is in the US, which is in some sort of electronic voting, which is recording your vote. Yeah, I don't know whether further down the line they have machines to count the votes. Um, mm. But yes, you're right. At the very least, we don't enter our votes into a machine. But he does certainly sounds like he's just echoing um, various right wing conspiracy theory talking points from the US. It's, yeah, no, it, it seems like more of what he's consuming and regurgitating is US based, but it seems like he's also got his fingers in a bunch of the the local nonsense and the the planetary stuff as well. I looked up a couple of the people that he has obviously been following to get this information from. He I went through a, like the last year or two of his Facebook posts, tried to find out who it was that he was uh, he was posting videos from, and Robert Deutsch and Ben Pelham were the two that I found. And one of them, their videos were getting a few thousand views. The other one, his videos were maybe getting 50 views or so. So Ken's found some really obscure conspiracy theorists with this kind of civilizations on the planets thing. He, he's not even found one of the big guys. Um, he, he's gone really fringe on this. Mm. I wonder just thinking aloud here, whether it would be worth somehow trying to expose his wacky beliefs in order to affect the sales of his almanacs, his weather almanacs. Would it people would be still nice. be willing to buy his weather almanacs if they knew you were coming from some right-wing crank with weird racist views? Yeah, I think that's actually potentially a good idea because there are still farmers out there that are buying it every year, right? Not mm. just here. Ireland as well is, mm. is big exactly. on Ring yeah. for some weird reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it might make a good story for the Irish papers to say, hey, look, look, Irish farmers, you're, you're consuming this stupid <laughs> yes. material from this guy who's got these wacky ideas. And and the, the way Ken Ring is with his confidence that he knows better than the experts, I think it really harks back to that Dr. Sprott thing we were talking about earlier. Mm. Again, somebody who's kind of, you know, independently minded and confident that they know better than everybody else, not just one area, but several areas of expertise. Yeah, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect, isn't it? Yeah, ooh, yeah. Have you read the latest on the Dunning-Kruger effect? There's an idea uh, that it might not be what we think it is. I, I did see that, but uh, my Dunning-Kruger effect was kicking in so that I didn't go and read it. 
Oh, that, that might be a, a profitable avenue to explore. Yes. Project. Well, maybe a profitable avenue was if we made our own weather almanac every year, <laughs> sold that. Yes, how do we establish credibility? <laughs> well, Ken Ring hasn't established credibility. He's crazy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> mm. Actually, can I can I be sued for defamation for that one? He might not be crazy. He's probably not crazy. He's just overly confident in his own abilities. I think so. And he's old. It's, uh, it's, it seems to me that as people age, they uh, become more uh, entrenched in their views. And uh... yeah. So, what's your game plan for dealing with this, Craig? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm only middle aged, so I've got a little while to go yet. Oh, really? At your age, you're still middle-aged. So I've got a while of being middle-aged. Yeah. Nice. Okay, that's really good to hear. When does middle-age finish? In my mind, I think probably around retirement. Okay. All right. I like that. that, that and I'm, I'm uh, not quite a decade away from that, but uh, certainly heading in that direction. Awesome. No, well, I just I, I Googled middle-age and, uh, and I accidentally clicked on middle-ages, which is quite a different thing. <laughs> Rest assured, if uh, if this old man syndrome starts affecting you and you start becoming very arrogant and weird in your beliefs, we will be having words at the next committee meeting about what's going on. You can try and roll me. <laughs> was, was that you can try, but you'll fail? Is this, uh, <laughs> is this a challenge? We're going to turn this into an autocracy. <laughs> God, no. No, thank you. All right. Have we got anything else we're going to talk about? I think that might be about it. I think it's been a nice conversation again. Always good to see you guys online. Hmm. Same, same. We've kind of done things a little bit around the wrong way tonight, uh, but that was my fault, mainly <laughs> launching into uh, the conference and the uh, uh, meetups talk early. But oh, anyway. A, the, the meetup one, I thought Bromin had a hand up for something, but I think she was just fidgeting. Um, so yeah, that one's my fault. And I am blameless as always. <laughs> Very good. You have been listening to the ENR podcast. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can uh, try sending us a message on Twitter at ENR pod, or you can send us an email to news at skeptics.nz. Yes. I think news at or newsletter at both should be fine, but news yes. at is good. It's shorter, easier to type. I'm sure that we'll get anything at skeptics.nz. We'll go somewhere. Yes, it will go, yeah, into a big black hole somewhere. We care about your message. We absolutely do. It's always great to get feedback about the podcast. Actually, especially good feedback, I think. Have we had any bad feedback? Or are skeptics just too damn polite to tell us when we've done something wrong? Well, nobody has said they hate it, so that's that's good. Okay, so now we just, um, we're going to get that hate letter now. <laughs> It'll be nice. I will print it out and frame it. We will discuss it on the next podcast. No, yeah, so it won't. better be it better be well reasoned. <laughs> it better be inflammatory. <laughs> all right. Good night. See you all soon. Adios. Bye.